Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today we're going to be talking about something that you might have heard a little bit about going on the news, but maybe aren't exactly sure what the deal is, and it's the South China Sea, a bunch of little rocks that actually are kind of a big deal. Yeah, uh, Xander and I actually both have studied this just incidentally a lot over the past N years. Xander read Kissinger's On China, among a whole number of other things. Back in college, I got to work on a book with Professor Taylor Fravel called Strong Borders, Secure Nation. I was a research guy for that. And it was about Chinese territorial security and their policy with respect to that. Um, and so I've been actually pretty academically interested in the South China Sea for some time. And in the South China Sea, for those of you who don't know why it might be interesting, uh, there's a lot of little rocks called the Spratleys, the Senkakus, and the Paracels. Uh, and they're seriously super tiny. I mean, there's like 750 of them, and they have a total land area of four square kilometers, which, uh, just for context, that's about the size of Trump's second largest hotel. So only moderately huge. Yeah, moderately huge. But uh, this is spread over 750 little parcels of rock um, and sand and not so sand. There are even little almost islands right under the ocean that China and other countries are building on to like get them to pop out of the water and be real islands. So it gets really complicated and really interesting, obviously, which is why we're talking about it. And, uh, you know, it goes into understanding. It requires understanding like the UN law of the seas and a bunch of treaties. And in particular, a lot of historical context that tells us why are, why is this suddenly really interesting when it's been literally sitting around there since the beginning of civilization? Um, so we're going to talk about China and its neighbors' expansion into the South China Sea today. Okay, so actually we're going to talk about that next time. Sorry. There's just too much awesome stuff that we need to cover to get up to that. Historical context, legal context, stuff like that. And, you know, it turns out that China and all of its neighbors have been around for a really long time. Uh, and so we're going to cover all the important stuff from that history and talk about how it relates to the current situation. And then once we... Once we've covered that, we'll, that'll cue us up for the next time we actually talk about exactly what's going on in those islands. So it's uh, it's a first on the show. We're having a two-episode miniseries on oh, yeah. the South China Sea. So what exactly is going on there? 
As Eric mentioned, there are these island chains called, called the Senkakus, the Spratleys, and the Paracels. And they're really just tiny rocks in the middle of nowhere. And these rocks are contested territories between a number of different countries. A lot of these different countries are using some international sets of laws to basically say, no, actually, these are ours. And what do you do when two international countries claim rights to the same set of land? So there's this concept called an exclusive economic zone, or EEZ, that's come up recently that we'll talk about a little bit. But China's essentially been using the concept of an exclusive economic zone to claim rights to more areas in the ocean than other countries want to give them credit for. And an EEZ is basically saying, or the concept of an EEZ is 200 miles beyond the borders of my coast or my coastline. That's my exclusive area. That's not a place where other countries can come and sail through basically whenever they want. There is no freedom of navigation in those areas. So China recently has been kind of unilaterally claiming, hey, you know, guys, these rocks, they're ours because they've actually, you know, you might not have known this, but they've been ours since the Qing dynasty. And uh, I know they're actually little tiny rocks, but oh, hey, you know what? They're not actually little tiny rocks. They're real islands. They're actually real real islands. And that's important because I get to claim certain things if they're real islands, according to these international sets of laws that I couldn't if they were just little rocks. So now we're just going to extend our maritime borders another 200 miles out beyond them, right? Okay, cool. No, Japan, you can't have them. You can't cross this line anymore unless we say so. No. So the implications here are that if it is decided uh, by, you know, whatever consensus building system we have like the UN that these all these islands do belong to say China then it's then all of the water between these little tiny rocks is also Chinese water uh, and and the water part is actually the far more interesting part than the rocks themselves right because this part of the world the South China Sea is where a lot of international commerce goes through there's also a lot of different nations that are allies with the US that well, they're a little worried about an aggressive China. So the Chinese, have, and we'll get into this a little bit in more detail, but they're really way more pro at playing the long game than the U.S. is. And this is in part because of some of their long-term ideology, but also a lot of historical reasons that we'll get into. So with China moving in on these little rocks, they're doing it without anyone's permission or consensus yet. And because they're so pro at the long game, what they're probably doing is saying, hey, let's put some airstrips in here. Let's put some little tiny harbors in here and just plant ourselves. And we're really hard to dislodge. We've got a fairly big regional navy. No one's really willing to pick a big fight with us over the islands. And we'll just stay here for the next 200 years. And at some point, everyone will just give up trying to fight us on it. And then they're ours, de facto. And it's a really, really, like like Xander said, they're very pro at the long game. And this is a great long game sort of coup where everyone else is sort of caught on their heels. Right. And this is kind of a problem. There's a lot of nations in the Asia Pacific that are concerned about an aggressive China, but one that really sticks out is Japan because Japan has last hundred years, but also last couple hundred years been historically antagonistic with China. And you can see just a number of invasions of the Chinese mainland, some really terrible atrocities during world war two so Japan is concerned about an aggressive China pushing back the other way and sees these 
almost legal maneuvers to gain access and rights to different areas in, in the South China Sea and claim greater rights to the areas of this ocean as a land grab that's actually a threat to its national security. Right. And and in Japan's sort of, from their perspective, I mean, China is dangerous. China has really, really belligerent like political verbiage towards Japan all the time. Uh, they make speeches about how like terrible Japan is. And, you know, occasionally China lets its citizens and sort of encourages them to go protest in a city where there are some Japanese-owned shops and break some windows and such. And then a few hours later, they roll in and go, oh, oh, goodness, what are you doing? No, 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 bad, bad. Go home. Get out of here. Shoo. Uh, and then everyone's like, oh, yes, we're bad. Uh, and they go home and there are all these broken windows of these Japanese shops. And, you know, it's not like China, it's not like the Chinese government's going to pay for it. It's just a reminder to Japan that we don't like you and... We like will be mean to you if you start doing stuff we don't like. And Japan's kind of extra freaked out about this because they haven't really been able to have a standing military since the end of World War II when the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on them in 1945. And the exchange there was the U.S. has continually provided a security guarantee to Japan, which really initially right after the war in the 50s let Japan rapidly rebuild its economy and go from what was really a defeated ideologically crippled, fledgling post-imperial state to one of the most powerful economies in the world. So the question then is, what about that security guarantee now? It remains a hallmark of U.S. security strategy in the Pacific because Japan is a major U.S. ally. And that kind of begs the question, what happens if Japan feels increasingly threatened by China? If, Jan if Japan really feels like their national security is being threatened, their critical national security, at what point will the U.S. be committed to actually use military force to defend its ally with the security guarantee? And that, that means military force against China, which is the most populous country in the world, that is also a nuclear power, which also has a very different strategic culture than the United States and Western countries generally. And this could potentially lead to a miscalculation being made by each other's leaders. Yeah, I think that, I mean, as far as Japan's existential security, like China trying to invade Japan or anything crazy like that, that's not going to happen, in part because the United States would absolutely smoke China in uh, a naval and air battle. I mean, we've, we've got a far more advanced and larger Navy than they do, way far more advanced Air Force and two of our 10 active aircraft carriers are positioned in the Western Pacific right now. And we've got three more on the West coast. So if the, if it came to a shooting fight to see who could control the sea between China and Japan, uh, the United States would win quite handily. And I think that goes into China's calculations. And so I think it limits the depth of threat that Japan faces. Certainly, and China doesn't really have a strategic culture that encourages it to take aggressive action that it feels like it's going to backfire. But of course, in the nuclear age, you always need to contemplate these hypotheticals. You know, if there were some sort of nuclear exchange with the ICBMs, and if there were not. Yeah. The question on everyone's mind is: Will the U.S. defend Japan if it is attacked? If the strength of our alliance gets tested, the U.S. may try to kind of narrow the definition of its obligations. You know, oh, that wasn't really a threat to your national security. That wasn't really an aggressive motion because narrowing the definition of its obligations 
kind of helps the U.S. avoid the risk of a, of a direct confrontation with China. Well, and I, you know, I don't want that to seem like a nefarious or cowardly thing, because it is the case that, I mean, frankly, China is so big that if it sneezes the wrong way, it could actually be interpreted as a threat to Japan's national security. So we do have to, you know, of course, the original treaty written back in the 50s has some fairly broad language. And the important part is for the United States to be clear about where that line is crossed. And I think it's actually done a pretty good job with, for example, Taiwan, which, by the way, has never even claimed to be a country independent from China. Um, it claims to be part of China. And but, you know, we still give it a security guarantee. Um, in the 1990s, when the Chinese were rattling some sabers and building some anti-air missiles on its east coast, we decided to send two aircraft carriers to park themselves between Taiwan and China. So very, very much in Chinese waters. And we said, no, too bad. It's stand down or it's going to be a problem. Now, this was the Clinton years. It was a very different time. But I think to some extent, the reason we haven't seen as much of that is because we've been preoccupied by the Middle East. I do think that it's the case that it's very much within the realm of possibility that if China became sufficiently aggressive, we would park a few aircraft carriers in the area again and say, hey, look, here's the line we're drawing in the sand. Yeah, the U.S. has been pretty quick to stick its neck out in recent years and say, hey, you can't unilaterally claim that this area of the ocean is yours. And we'll get a little bit more into some of the recent recent developments in the next episode. Yeah, the and the only note on red lines is that we have drawn fewer of them as of late and... The last time we did in Syria about chemical weapons use, it really didn't go well. And what had happened was President Obama said, hey, if you use chemical weapons, that's the the big bright red line. We're going to have to come in and do something. And then Assad used them literally 12 times. And we're like, Ugh. and that's been a credibility issue. And so it does leave Japan with a few strategic questions about like, OK, you know, can we trust the United States to do what it says it's going to do? Because that reliability is really important. And that's obviously one of the big risks of red lines, because now we have Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe increasingly striking these nationalistic positions. And this is potentially worrying not only to China, but also other Pacific Rim countries that have fairly recent collective memories of an aggressive imperialist Japan that impressed that entire region. And the thing is, once you start drumming off these nationalistic motivations and ambitions, well, you get things like this recent amendment that was just passed in Japan to its mm. constitution that lets it start sending troops overseas for the first time since the end of World War II. So there are changes being made. Yeah, and this is where we start to see what in the international relations academic field we call a security spiral, where one country does something to try to enhance its own security with respect to what it considers its natural interests. And we'll talk about China's national interests later, but you know, the South China Sea is related to that. Other things they do, like putting missile batteries next to Taiwan are related to that. But that gives them naturally offensive capacity because you know, if you're expanding your navy, if you're moving onto some islands that are further out near some other countries, other countries see that as threatening. So they start doing stuff to increase their own national security. And But you know, China can see that as a threat to them. And so this is how stuff like uh, World War One happens, and geopolitical positioning causes this to happen frequently to certain countries. So, like France and Germany, India, Pakistan, Iran and Saudi Arabia, Russia and Eastern Europe, Argentina, Brazil. 
And the reason we haven't seen it, we haven't seen wars erupting in these areas as much, is in large part due to the fact that the United States has such a preponderance of military force and a willingness to use it in certain circumstances that are well-defined that there hasn't been as much of a security threat. So there's one theory that a lot of the quote-unquote realists have that as the United States becomes less committed overseas, these security spirals are going to become more frequent and there's a higher risk of war. And that might be something we're seeing in East Asia right now. And the way that Barack Obama is responding to that is that the United States is pivoting back towards East Asia after 10 to 15 years of sort of ignoring it in order to try to keep a lid on this. So the security sort of dilemma between China and Japan is this. The book I worked on makes the argument, and I like this argument, that China's primary motivation is territorial security for its populous eastern region. So if you look at a population map of China, which we have up on the uh, blog post, you'll see a lot of density near the water in the east, not too far north, not too far south. So it really cares about having Tibet, which is sparsely populated mountainous, and Xinjiang, which is the Muslim Tibet in the Northwest, the one that nobody cares about because it doesn't have a charismatic Dalai Lama, but it's just as oppressed. <laughs> uh, no, it's true. Uh, it has a desert to the north, it has jungle to the south, it has uh, tundra to the northeast, and then it has a big ocean to its... And, and all that stuff is almost impenetrable. It's almost impenetrable. It's really hard to power through that without just getting torn to pieces. You'll be slow trying to invade, stuff like that. But then it has this ocean with a lot of highly populated countries nearby. And we know from the past two centuries where China was invaded over and over, and they call it the centuries of shame, that all of China's trouble comes from the ocean. And so when we're talking about China's primary security focus right now, it is in securing its ocean frontier to the east. That's why it's so crazed about Taiwan. That's why it's developing a bigger navy and an air force it's why it sees japan as a threat and it's why it's going into the south china sea trying to snap up those islands so we want to provide a little bit of context to show how the common narrative might not be broad enough to really allow for a nuanced interpretation of what's going on in the pacific right now so what's been the common narrative as it relates to china well china is this big up-and-coming power, new kid on the block, sort of bully trying to push the U.S.'s allies around. Yeah. It's been, yeah, it's been manipulating currency. Yeah. Asserting itself, to, <laughs> dunking kids' heads in the toilet over yeah. recess. Uh, <laughs> you know, asserting it, itself dominantly all over the place, challenging democratic values with its one-party central authoritarian government. They hate us for our freedom. They hate us for our freedom. <laughs> it, I, I almost can't say that anymore without laughing. Well, you know, and, and I mean, like the Donald Trump narrative, that's very popular. And you also see it in a probably more a more subtle way on the left as well, is that like China is cheating in trade. It's not playing fair. Um, and so we're sort of getting screwed over and our jobs are going over there to China. And for some reason, we don't want them to have jobs. And, you know, it's it's so like they're sort of seen as this as this like perennial bad guy. Now, Friday, the feds announced that China is selling $366 billion more merchandise to we Americans than we Americans sell back to the Chinese. $366 billion trade gap. Specifically, right. specifically, how will you fix that? You know, this is my big point. I've been talking about it I for know, years. I know, but I want to know how you're going to do it. Well, listen to me. I'll tell you, okay? 
we are going to have to go. One of the reasons they're able to do it is they devalue their currency to such an extent. They are the single greatest currency manipulator that's ever been on this planet. And if they don't stop devaluing, we're going to have to charge them a tax on the goods coming in. They, by the way, Bill, just in case you don't know it, they tax our goods going into China. It's a totally unfair deal. And what's happened, every time they devalue their currency, they make it impossible and more and more difficult for our businesses to deal with China on the other side. The gap is getting bigger and bigger. It's really called the deficit. The deficit is getting bigger and bigger. And unless we have somebody very smart and very tough that understands it, and our president does not understand it, but I understand it better than anybody, we're going to have nothing but trouble. So you're going it's to say going to be that, um... 505... And this is just a great example to me of how, obviously, the way people interpret a, a situation and ascribe a narrative to it necessarily influences policies and actions. So if you change the narrative by broadening your scope a little bit, that may very well change the policy outcome. So the problem, of course, is all of this is not how China sees itself. They're not new. They're not this new up-and-coming kid on the block. They've been around forever. They've been around for thousands and thousands of years. The earliest writing we have coming out of China from like 2000 BCE talks about this empire that has been around forever. So even prehistoric, China has always been this central power, this middle kingdom. And at least over the last couple hundred years, in China's eyes, as Eric mentioned, they've been wronged. They have been invaded by Western powers, they fought the Opium War with, you know, over trade in their country, and they've been wronged. This two-century of shame period has lasted just about as long as you know the U.S. has been around at all. Early nineteenth century, yeah. and right now they're just finally recovering. They're just finally getting back onto the scene, and this this recovery, this getting their stuff together, this reunification is something that in Chinese history has happened time after time after time again when their society has collapsed in on itself. And sometimes the period during which these collapses happen lasts hundreds of years. Right. And it, and it always keeps coming back together. Sort of it's without exception. And that, you know, it, it's not that it's not that we want to flip the narrative of China being the bad guys on its head per se. It's not that China are the good guys and the U S is the new bad guy bully up and coming. I mean, colonialism from the 18th century or the 19th century aside, that was a long time ago from our perspective, not so long ago from China's perspective. And that difference in that difference in, you know, length of hindsight is actually really important yeah, as we mentioned earlier, China likes to play the long game. So their horizon of both the past and the future is a lot longer than that of the United States. So there's just if you if you want to understand China, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of bitterness, but there's also a lot of ultimately like anxiety that you know they don't trust the Western powers, they don't trust Japan. You know, they really feel like they have to fend. You know, they don't trust Russia certainly. So they really feel like they have to fend for themselves, and they have to be able. They have to be in a position to bargain from strength. And they want to be, I think, part of the world community. Um, but they don't want to be, they don't want to have to play by the rules of the West because that hasn't worked out well for them in the, you know, again, for them historically short period of time that they've been in serious contact with the West. And I think understanding those perspectives differently is really going to, like, is really going to help us see, you know, what, what China's motivations are here. So, to, to get that, we at least have to take a step back to the late 19th 
and into the 20th centuries. You know, we talked already about the two centuries of shame. The first one was when Western powers showed up. Um, if you remember the Great White Fleet and stuff like that, we rolled up to Japan and we said, hey, guys, look at our crazy cool tech. You should trade with us. And Japan was like, sounds great. Yeah, cool. Uh, hey, can we buy some of those guns? And we're like, sure, have some guns. <laughs> um, and we became buddy-buddy. Uh, China kind of said like, eh, like we've been doing pretty well for the past 4,000 years, but thanks. You know, we're going to, you know, for some versions of well, but you know, it's, it's felt stable. We're good. And the West said, mm, no, and literally just <laughs> invaded. And so like, if you look at Shanghai, there's stuff like the French quarter and, uh, you know, it's, it's architecture is all very Western, not because China decided we're going to adopt Western architecture. It was because they got literally invaded by the United States, France, Britain, and Russia, and they carved up China. And that's why you got stuff like the Boxer Rebellion, the Opium War, stuff like mm -hmm. that, is that it was a it was literally colonized. And then in the second, you know, and then finally they get rid of, you know, they get rid of the colonial powers except for Hong Kong and Macau, you know, which which have which turned into a lease at that point. And then they're like, OK, OK. And then they decide to have their own communist war mark one and they have their own internal revolutions and they sort of fall apart they become weak and then the japanese show up and they invade and it's awful and there's the rape of nanking and millions of chinese people get slaughtered um and finally thanks to china's deep defense strategy and you know the united states coming in and nuking japan and japan running out of oil um you know that ended japan got out and then communist war mark two happens and they have a civil war. I mean, it's just mayhem. And then Mao Zedong takes over. It's 1949. So China doesn't even get a chance to get just breath at this point. Mao shows up, you know, beats the Kuomintang uh, in the civil war. The Kuomintang retreats to Taiwan, um, claims to be the legitimate government of all of China. The United States agrees. So essentially Taiwan is a government in, ex in exile. The communists take over the mainland. They have the Great Leap Forward, which is like five years of allegedly awesome production, but for a lot of reasons, it actually goes really badly, and there's a huge famine, and 20 million people die, and so they're like, oh god, that didn't work, and it looks like the revolution's starting to slow down at that point, because so many people died, uh, so Mao says, okay, let a thousand flowers bloom, cultural revolution, just go nuts, literally, and then... Uh, re-education camps and kids turning in their parents for being kind of revolutionaries and killing their teachers and running around having like running gang warfare on the streets. I mean, it's nuts. It's totally nuts. Um, and so there's this massive economic and societal breakdown. Unprecedented. Um, essentially, I don't think anything I can think of that the West has ever seen. I mean, way worse than the French Revolution. Wait, I mean, this is on the scale of of Stalin's purges, tens and t I, I've, I've seen figures like 60 million Chinese died through the period of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, although most of that was accidental famine. Uh, and it, I'll tell you some other time about exactly how that happened. It's a very interesting case and in why you don't have a centrally planned economy. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, something on the order of 50, 60 million people die. And so China is just shattered. And finally, this guy, Deng Xiaoping, shows up and he says, okay, it's time to start turning the ship around. Deng Xiaoping is a great man. He fought a great revolution 
he saw the product of that revolution turn sour. He was fortunate to live long enough and he had the courage to say, no, we change course. Let's learn. Let's stop trying to do everything by ourselves. China calms down a lot. And then this happens actually during the time of Nixon in the United States. Right. So this is early 1970s. The U.S. has had no diplomatic contact with China since the communist revolution in 1940, uh, 1949, all through 1971-72. And when I say no diplomatic contact, I don't mean there weren't news articles published about this. It's not that China was just not publicly discussed in the U.S. It was that our two governments had almost no communication with each other at all for nearly 30 years. Right. And the reason is because we recognized the Guomindang, which was stationed in Taiwan because they'd retreated from the communists. And the Guomindang was a government in exile. And they said, Guomindang, you're the legitimate, legitimate government of all of China. The communists are rebels that just happen to hold the whole mainland. And this sounds silly. This sounds very silly. But if you think of like, for example, the Nazis taking over France and Charles de Gaulle retreating to Britain, you know, and there was a Vichy government, we said, hey, Charles de Gaulle is the legitimate ruler is the wrong word, but sort of the legitimate leader of the free French people. And we kept in touch with him. So that's what it felt like at the time. The problem, of course, is in World War Two, the Nazis were defeated. Yeah. The French government came back and took the country back over. Whereas in Taiwan, that situation has just kind of been there. And it's been like that since 1949. And we've continued to support the government in exile in Taiwan. But it's just become sort of a drawn out problem because who's really in charge? And this is a source of some tension there still today. It's really awkward. Yeah, it's a strange situation. And it's super awkward. So what happened in, in the early 1970s between the U.S. and China? Well, it was this process called détente. And this, was, this just means a, a lessening in tensions and the relations between the U.S. and China. Now, this was not a formal alliance. It was just an, an understanding that was developed between the two countries that they had some similar strategic interests. For example, checking the creeping expansion of the USSR, which China had been butting heads with for really quite a while after the war. Now, a lot of people believe that this process of detente was really the critical turning point in the Cold War. Because by pulling together this alignment of similar strategic interests, the United States and China were essentially able to really alienate the USSR, and they had no big friends anymore. Yeah, so, I mean, they were literally surrounded. Yes. So Deng Xiaoping's reforms led to a restructured, semi-controlled instead of completely controlled economy, and... It, they ultimately really led to some unequaled economic growth that really persisted for a long time through the modern day. Um, and as China has become economically stronger, they have, as many countries do, started to see an expansion of what they consider to be their national and economic security interests, like trade, securing different types of resources, defending larger areas. And this 
leads to a broader national security mandate. So as China's economy has grown over the last 30 years since Deng's reform, its military has become increasingly strong. And China sees itself as not only having to protect its national interests, but but now it actually has the military capability to do so as well. Right. And, you know, it's sort of like we mentioned in our sort of very, very fast history of China in the 20th century. I mean, this is kind of an eye blink to China's, you know, sort of long game style. And you have to I mean, you have to remember that the Chinese government doesn't turn over as frequently as the United States government does, right? It's it's very consistent. Um, it's very constant. You know, you do have some turnover, but it's largely the case that, like, turnover happens when it is necessary, not every time voters get in a huff over the economy. And so there's, you know, there's, like, actually some benefits of having these meritocratic experts that are in the government for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, in particular, since they're so philosophically guided towards what they see as the good of the state. And this has actually been the case in China. I mean, this like this fundamental style of like meritocratic expertise running the government has been around since the earliest of the imperial dynasties. I mean, it's always been this way. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I think, I think that to get a true understanding of what's really going on with China, we have to look at some of the patterns that have happened over the past, you know, few thousand years. So we're going to take one more step back. Yeah, first, we've gone back a couple hundred years. Now let's go back a couple of thousand years. The US is about 250 years old. China, as I mentioned a little bit ago, millennia old, think ancient Egypt old. And unlike in the US, where our society is structured based on the principles of individuality, personal liberties, right to privacy, free speech, all the good stuff that we find and appreciate in our constitution, Chinese culture has generally been focused more on culture and tradition with an emphasis on the group over the individual. China is a country that has really fallen into chaos and dissolution many times for long periods of time, for periods of time as longer than the U.S. has been around. And each time, the country has managed to reunify under a new dynasty that claims the mandate of heaven and rules under the legitimacy of this consistent tradition. So the emphasis on tradition in Chinese, in, in Chinese culture has really proven 
remarkably resilient over thousands of years. China as a state has failed, but it has always reunified and repositioned itself as the Middle Kingdom, which is has essentially always been a regional power that is owed tribute by all its neighbor states because of its superior culture. Now, of course, the Middle Kingdom has always been a regional power for millennia when they were disconnected from the rest of the world. They thought really they were the center of the universe. Yeah, and at least anecdotally, I have found that – so I spent significant amount of time in China. I spoke enough Chinese to get around and my – I certainly get the feeling that among normal Chinese people, because it sounds a little weird, like it sounds a little abstract what we're saying. Um, but anecdotally, I certainly get the impression that among the Chinese people, there is a sense that they are linked to this 4,000 year old past very directly. They understand like very actively the importance of tradition, not blindly. And so they like kind of actively make the choice to suborn some of their challenging, active challenging and thinking to an active participation in this tradition and sort of like going with the flow, the way that things have worked in the past. Um, and they do, I mean, like these individual people, you know, some 25 year old guy at a bar thinks of the United States kind of as a baby. And so this is like, this is actually to a large extent, the mindset that actually goes on, I think in China. And that's not to make a blanket statement. It's just to point out that there are real cultural differences between our two countries, right? Right, exactly. So history, culture, tradition obviously plays a big difference in how countries shape their international relations and inter-country relationships. But come but on, so, geopolitics, man, geopolitics. That's what we're all about. So that matters, but also sort of how a country is situated influences the ideology that they develop that leads them to interact in a certain way with the rest of the world. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about what countries border the U.S. Easy. Canada, Mexico, right? Kind of Cuba. Kind, well, kind of Cuba. Yeah, you got a little bit of water detaching you, but really the direct land borders, mm. Canada, Mexico. And then you have two big, nice cushions the Atlantic and the Pacific on the other side of you, defending you from everything that's going on in distant Asia and all the crazy continental wars going on in the late 18th century, early 19th century Europe. Now, what countries border China? Here, I'll read you the list. Afghanistan, Bhutan, Brunei, India, Indonesia, Japan, Kazakhstan, Korea, Kyrgyzstan, Laos, Malaysia, Mongolia, Myanmar, Nepal, Pakistan, the Philippines, Russia, uh, Taiwan, kind of, Tajikistan, and Vietnam. So 20 borders if you include some that have shared uh, maritime disputes. So while the U.S. is only bordered by two relatively, well, not relatively, very friendly, close allied countries and two China, giant oceans. One of which is going to pay for a wall for us. They're so friendly. I don't know how. They're just going to do it. They're just going to do it. Yeah. So China, on the other hand, has 20 countries on its borders. And this requires a very different foreign policy strategy, a different approach to how you interact with the countries around you. And for millennia in China, the one-sentence summary of their foreign policy strategy has basically been keep the barbarians divided. And 
when the strategy has failed, groups like the Huns and the Mongols were able to unify and wreak just terrible havoc throughout the entire Chinese empire. However, China has always seemed to have the capacity to absorb these invading groups into its culture and outlive them through this sense of cultural continuity. Yeah, I mean, it was even the case that there was a, God, I forget which, but there was a dynasty of Mongol emperor, like Mongol, ethnically Mongol emperors in China that basically the the first son, so the first successor in the Mongol dynasty was like, wait a minute, this Chinese culture thing's pretty cool. I'm going to do that. And he like started wearing Chinese clothing and speaking Chinese and writing Chinese. And he was just, he was uh, Hanenized, uh, Han being the Chinese word for like their own ethnicity um, or their like core ethnicity. And so, uh, yeah, that cultural continuity is just very strong and survives all this shakeup. And that cultural continuity also has survived even the centuries of shame, World War II, the Cultural Revolution. Uh, the Cultural Revolution is probably the closest thing to totally shattering it forever, but it came back. And so in, in combination with that, you know, we talked earlier about China's big borders geopolitically, the way it deals with a lot of these barbarians when they become strong is they use deep defense. So they did that against, for example, most recently Japan, uh, when they invaded in World War II, China retreated most of its forces away from the coast and into mountains, kind of like the Russians did against the Germans. Uh, and the point was to extend the supply lines of the Japanese. And who boy, did they get bogged down? Uh, they literally, I mean, even before the United States was close enough to Japan's uh, island to start bombing it, or Japan's main island to start bombing it, they started running, literally running out of diesel. And they just couldn't move trucks. So they had to start dragging stuff and, you know, building carts and stuff to try to move weapons around within China. It was just a mess. It got ugly. Yeah. And, you know, Eric and I have now used this word barbarians a couple of times, and this isn't just off the cuff. In a lot of well, I guess it's translations into English. The Chinese very frequently throughout history refer to their non-Hun neighbors as barbarians. They have an inferior culture. And that, I mean, I'm saying that sort of tongue in cheek. But even when the British came and initially tried to initiate trade in the early 19th century, the Chinese emperor sent a note back with the traders referring to the the British king is a barbarian. I mean, this is a phrase that comes up over and over and over again. So keeping the barbarians divided is not just, you know, a phrase that I kind of came up with off the cuff here. I've got some trivia for you. Let's hear it. Do you know where the word barbarian comes from? Bar, bar, bar. Yeah. Oh, did I tell you that already? No, I just knew it. Oh, okay. So the Greeks, okay. So for everyone else, the Greeks were the, were, they used the term, the, the term that we now use today for barbarian. They, you know, the etymology goes back to the Greeks and the Greeks looked around them. And similarly to the Chinese thought that everyone around them was a barbarian. And the reason they called them barbarians was they, everyone else spoke a different language from Greek. And the Greeks just thought that all the languages sounded like bar, 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 bar. So that was, that. Be, I mean, they became like the barbar people based on that. Yeah. So all of the neighboring Germanic tribes, the Visigoths, the Goths, the, oh God, now, of course, I'm not remembering more of them, but there were lots of different tribes. They all just got, got lumped into this one category called barbarians because you know, they were different. So anyway, yeah, the, I think that context helps like understand what someone means by barbarians. Cause we're not, you know, this, this is a, uh, it's just like what happens when you sit at the top in the center of your world for a long time, you start looking at everyone else. You go like, maybe we're just better. Yeah. 
Okay, good. Tangent complete. Yeah. Now, in China, this divide and conquer strategy, which, I mean, you can kind of call a realist foreign policy strategy, although I guess realist is kind of a loaded word at this point, that's kind of guided the development of more fluid, subtle foreign policy strategy than exists here in the United States. Mm. Chinese diplomacy always focuses on the long game and exhibits a patience that the ever-changing American public sentiment usually would not permit. So what do I mean by that? Before World War I, the United States was a relatively isolated middle power. Um, having founded the First Republic in nearly 2,000 years, the American people, and perhaps rightly so, considered themselves philosophically above the fray of the cold, real politic policy that was practiced between the major powers on the European continent in the early 19th century. After witnessing these massive interstate wars, you know, with Napoleon and as time went on between Germany and Prussia or Prussia and uh, Austro-Hungary and France, America thought that Europe's problems were really none of its concerns. They lived in a more, we, America, lived in a more enlightened society. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it was, it was also, this was also real politic in a way. And I, I think of realism more as descriptive than prescriptive. I do too. Uh, yeah. You know, it tells you what's going on rather than what you what's right or what you should do. And, you know, it happens to be the case that U.S. interests were to trade with all of these guys, um, you know, because we had huge agriculture compared to them. You know, we exported a lot of cotton and grain and such, and we wanted to import all of their goods and not get embargoed by them. It just didn't help us. And frankly, it was also just not in the U.S. interest at any point to get bogged down in foreign entanglements, as it was called. Um, all the way across the bloody ocean with all these, you know, countries that would just be swapping kings every now and then that wanted something different. So, you know, and we said, look, this is just isn't our problem. We want nothing to do with it. And so, you know, times they have changed. Yeah. And America sits over here for 100 years and says, you know, silly Europe, these continental entanglements, they're for colonial powers. We're better than that. But of course, We're better than that. But, but of course, we said that having a giant buffer called the Atlantic Ocean sitting between us. I mean, that... Geography determines strategy to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, to most of the degree. And it wasn't until the United States finally faced German victory in World War I that it had to actually get involved. Because, frankly, the the biggest security threat to the United States, given these huge oceans, is if someone comes to dominate a continent, an entire continent, the way that the United States dominates, dominates an entire continent. Because then that country has the resources and territorial security to actually be able to challenge the United States for dominance of the Atlantic or the Pacific Oceans. So the United States is looking at World War I going, holy smokes, Russia just capitulated to the Germans. The Germans are turning all their guns to the West. France is almost out of gas. They might take over the entire effing continent. And so then the security prerogative for the United States actually kicked into gear to say, okay, now we have to get involved. And President Wilson knew he wasn't able to, wasn't going to be able to convince the Americans to go to war with Europe, you know, just driven by like, explaining the national security interest of, you know, realist of realist policy. Uh, now he had to, he had to appeal to American ideology, right? We showed up. We've always been a city upon the hill. Uh, we've always been an example for Europe to follow. And so Wilson and Wilsonian, what we call Wilsonian foreign policy is about doing what's right, about freeing people from oppression, about using foreign policy as a moral tool. 
the war was pitched as freeing the British and the Polish and the French from the tyranny of what were called the Huns, you know, these barbarians Mm -hmm. from Germany. And it worked. The United States got really excited about it and, uh, you know, threw a bunch of grossly undertrained and out of shape conscripts at the problem. But luckily, we didn't all have Spanish flu at the time and we won. It worked so brilliantly that we sort of haven't gone back. And this conception of a Wilsonian from President Wilson, a Wilsonian foreign policy has in one form or another basically stuck around to the modern day. Um, Now, I'm going to make a couple of sort of broad generalized statements and just understand that they're broad and generalized. but And therefore true in every case. 100% predictive and descriptive. Americans tend historically to see war in terms of right or wrong, just or unjust, and events that, you know, must be confronted and focused on with immense effort effort for a short period of time, overcome, and then we can move past and get past the, the period of conflict. America is not really accustomed to thinking about foreign policy in really long terms, because Ever since America stepped onto the world stage in World War One, this approach to intervention has worked for us remarkably well. The problem is that for most of the 20th century, the West had a major technological advantage over the rest of the world. And America had a major economic and developmental benefit relative to Europe after the two devastating world wars that really drove the collapse of the continental empires on the European continent. Now, I would posit that this is changing. Other countries are gaining access to capabilities that are increasingly closing the gap between American and and other Western country superiority. And whether we in America can adapt to more nuanced, long-term foreign policy is really yet to be seen. Yeah, and it's always easier to play catch up than to be the one racing, you know, staying ahead because copying what someone else has already figured out is way cheaper than coming up with it in the first place. And so this is why you can see, you know, this, I mean, essentially, this is why the developing world has a really, really high growth rate because they're essentially just, you know, adopting what other countries have done in the past and largely don't want to do anymore. Same thing militarily. It's pretty cheap to be the second best military or the second, you know, have the second best, you know, fighter in the world. It's really expensive to have the most expensive fighter in the world. And so and so that's part of why the gap is closing, 
because both economically and technologically, it's easier to you know stay right behind. And so this is part of why the United States throws so much money at its military. It requires a ton of investment to stay at the front. And we're also very casualty averse, right? So our air and sea power not only needs to be better, but it needs to be pretty much untouchable because we you know, we just have a more of a stomach for throwing $15 billion in an airplane than having it ever get shot down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also important from the United States perspective to be able to beat anyone right at their home turf, uh, which is hugely expensive because it means you've got to be bigger than most people put together. And the reason for this is to maintain freedom of international trade, right? We essentially guarantee to the world, hey, look, We'll always, you know, no one's ever going to mess with your trading routes because if they do, we're going to come in and beat the snot out of them. And this is important in the United States because we want to be the trading hub of the world with both Asia and Europe. Uh, And so far, it's worked very well. It's why the U.S. sits at top. Yeah, I think the U.S. spends something like more than the next 10 countries combined spend on their defense budgets. Yes. And it's, it's kind of a staggering figure. But when you think about the fact that the U.S. is really not just defending itself, but, and I'm sure people, some people would argue with this, but underwriting the security for a good portion of the globe, that kind of explains part of that. And, and you know, one way to look at that is the U.S. is a global hegemon, whether for good or evil, depending on what your perspective is. The other is that the U.S. has been essentially subsidizing our allies' defense for decades. And this has begun to work its way back into the presidential debate rhetoric a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's come up with Trump, who has suggested that it would make sense for NATO allies to begin contributing more money towards their own defense budgets. Well, and uh, Sanders, who I don't know, I don't know if he wants NATO to contribute more to their own defense budgets, but he certainly wants the U.S. to con- to commit less. Right. NATO, by the way, is just the organization for defense that exists on the European continent that came about after World War II. Both Trump and Sanders have brought up this issue. And um, don't get me wrong, Trump, I believe, is crazy. But this is actually a point that's been made by a lot of foreign policy, defense, security experts for years. The point that more NATO members need to begin contributing more money to their own defense. Because what we're facing right now is a moral hazard situation where as more countries become more developed and gain military capabilities, the U.S. is not going to be able to underwrite the defense of all of its allies to the extent that it has been able to for the last 60 years. And the counter argument to that is that... um from a realist, and again, this is descriptive rather than prescriptive, so understanding how does the world work. From a realist perspective on foreign policy, the reason that Europe has not gone to war with itself since World War II is not because everyone decided to be a democracy and be happy-dappy. The reason it... The, <laughs> is and, that a technical were, term? Happy-dappy? Happy-dappy is, yes, it's a, <laughs> it's a technical foreign policy term uh, coined by... Uh, you know, Johnson and Johnson in 1993. Thanks. And yes. So uh, the realists say, and I'm of this school, that the reason Europe hasn't gone to war is because the United States, you know, first the United States and Soviet unions, but now just the United States military is so much bigger than anyone else's. And it's very clear that we would just curb stomp anyone who makes serious trouble. It actually eliminates the security spiral problem in Europe where You know, if France looks over at Germany and they say, ooh, I wonder if that, like, those two new planes they built are coming after us. They go like, wait a minute, I don't have to care. 
because the United States has like 800 of them. So yeah. like, it just doesn't matter. Um, so it, you know, it lets them get along. And so I think that the, not that I'm hell bent on the United States having, a you know, spending so much money on its military, but I think we at least need to, from that perspective and in the, you know, pulling it back a little bit from the perspective of East Asia, um, in particular, balancing Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, and China, we have to think about how much does a massive preponderance of power for the United States give us the capacity to keep peace in the region versus what would happen if we decided to scale down a little bit. So that's my that's my rant on hegemony. Um, I think it's a foreign policy position that we have to take seriously. So how does our foreign policy in the U.S. compare to China's over, I don't know, its history or recently? I mean, the the... The short version is, is we're a shock and awe country. You know, we say like, oh my God, Germany is invading France. Uh, let's sit around for a while and wait and wait and wait. Okay. And we're going to blow them up. Done. Right. And it was fast. I mean, I remember people talking about, you know, on my Facebook feed or whatever, people pointed out like today, the Iraq war has gone on longer than World War II. And I was sort of like, I don't think you guys understand how bloody fast World War II was, in particular for its scale and level of destructiveness. I mean, it was fast. It was six years that, like, a country went all the way across, like, took over all of Europe and then re-collapsed. And by the way, it happened on two continents. I mean, it's mind-boggling how fast it was. And that's how the U.S. likes things. You know, so we sort of went into World War II and we said, all right, let's start bombing some stuff, kick it around. All right, we're done. And even in Japan, we were like, we're really, you know, after five years, we got tired of it. One of the reasons we nuked Japan was we just ran out of, you know, ran out of steam culturally to be able to continue this war. So we're impatient. We like things done fast. You know, we we like putting up banners that declare mission accomplished three months after we show up somewhere and before we have any idea whether it's going to work. And that's our style. And sometimes it works really well that because it really lets, I mean, it worked really well, for example, in in uh, the Balkans, and it worked really well in the Iraq-Kuwait war. You know, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, we were like, nope, <laughs> right? And we bombed them for 100 days, and then three days after getting on the ground, Saddam was like, okay, I've done, forget it. I've done, whatever you want, right? And it worked great, but that's our style. China's style is the total opposite. And one of the reasons we're so fast is obviously because politicians know that they can get turned over in two to four years. So they have to show progress in two to four years, which like has some serious potential flaws. Um, so it makes them, you know, insist on being fast or not doing it at all because they can get voted out if someone's grumpy about it. Whereas China, as we mentioned before, like they have policy experts that get appointed totally non-democratically and they stick around for 30 or 40 years and they sit there and they think, what does China need in 200 years? which is, I think, just not a question that American politicians act. Um, and so it allows them to be very, very patient and also very, very subtle because they're able to think, hmm, if we do this now, what are the consequences we see in five years? And are we willing to put up with that in order to see the fruit blossom in 40? And this is a fundamental difference between how America and China approach the international arena. They have different strategic cultures and that just, what is a strategic culture? The concept of a strategic culture is that the way that a society or a country or a nation state 
thinks about how it performs its strategy is different and influenced based on their culture. I'm not going to make a value judgment on whether America's or Chinese is better or superior, but this difference between the two countries' strategic culture exists in part due to their radically different histories, one of which is many, many, many times older than the other. And these different strategic cultures influence how our two countries interact and contribute at least somewhat to the ratcheting up of tensions in the South China Sea. And I'm going to posit that the concept of a strategic culture is really central to being able to reconsider in a broader context what exactly is going on in the Pacific right now. So bring it back together, right? So we do see these two very different approaches to foreign policy based on the political makeup of the country, the strategic culture, and the history, uh, sorry, the history and the geopolitical positioning of each country. The United States is often based on fixing moral wrongs right now, and China plays a very, very long, like multiple generations long game about subtly improving in the long term its national interest. And that national interest is based largely on having strong borders and weak neighbors, where the United States national interest is making sure nobody is a regional hegemon, right? And so for the and that's where we start to see some of the conflict between China and the United States, that it is our, you know, we're making it our business to make sure that China doesn't become too powerful and totally dominate East Asia. The South China Sea is a bunch of little rocks. And the rocks themselves don't really matter, but they're incredibly strategic in this game between China trying to create security on its eastern ocean border and the United States trying to maintain freedom and uh, a lack of hegemony in East Asia. Um, these, yeah, If you look on the map in the blog post, you'll see that these islands sit in these very, very strategic waterways. And they also happen to be sitting on a whole bunch of undersea oil and gas. And we've known that kind of for a while, but it used to be the case that uh, it was very expensive to get to this stuff and oil was cheap. Now it's much cheaper to get to this stuff and oil is less cheap. So basically, as soon as it became economical to get at this oil and gas, everyone started scrambling for it. Um, and this is why everyone else has been caught on their heels. All of China's neighbors looked at the Spratleys, Senkakus, and Paracels when it suddenly became really interesting from a perspective of getting oil and gas out of them. And they said, ooh, this is great. And they looked over and they said, all right, oh my God, China's already there. And the reason China's already there was because they know how to play the long game. And so we'll talk about what's, what's going on with this next time. So China's stolen the initiative and started moving in. The US and our allies are figuring out what the heck to do next. And next time we're going to talk about how they're reacting, what that means. And in particular, what are the... Like, what are the implications of the different ways that this could be going? I mean, it's just, it's really interesting because if you were to think of some sort of metaphor for it, you know, if the United States comes in and smashes a rock to pieces with a sledgehammer, Chinese strategy is to use water to gradually fill in the cracks. And each crack that the water flows through isn't really worth the effort to oppose. So by the time you recognize that they've made lots of gains. It's kind of already too late. Mm, yeah. And the, the question is going to be, how does the United States and China deal with its 
different strategic interests and different strategic cultures in a way that hopefully is peaceful, peaceful and contributive to regional stability. And we'll talk more in the next episode specifically about what's been going on recently in the Pacific and South China Sea, some recent activity um, developments in our allied countries in China, and hopefully with the context that we've gone over in this episode, you'll be able to fully reconsider your interpretation of it. And understand why these tiny little rocks are such a big effing deal. So with that, we'll catch you guys in two weeks with Little Rocks Part 2, The Revenge of the Little Rocks or something. (laughs) That's a terrible name, but something like that. Little Rocks Strike Again? The Little Rocks Strike Again, exactly. Little Rocks Strike Back. Uh, So thanks so much for listening. This is Eric signing off. And remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Stop and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. See you next time. See you guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.